You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's bow before the Lord and ask his blessing on our time before we begin our study. Our Father, we come to your word, and it is with uh, confident expectation that you speak to us in the pages of this book. We thank you for a written word that is inflexible and never changes like you never change. We thank you that you have lifted your word up as high as your very name, and you have invested in your word your own authority. And we ask, O oh God, that as we look at it today, that you would speak to our hearts, comfort us, encourage us, help us to view ourselves rightly, and teach us something of our Savior in this passage, we ask your blessing upon this time, and the guidance and power of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this last week at my house, we had a little bit of a project or an experiment, I guess you would say. My children, in order to earn an empathy badge for their Taekwondo uniforms in their Taekwondo class, had to do a little project to learn empathy. And they basically had to live 24 hours as if they had a disability. So they could choose between paralysis and blindness. So they could either spend 24 hours not using their legs or 24 hours not seeing, and wrap a bandana around their head or whatever would, in order to keep them blind for 24 hours. Now, three of them, only three of them have done this project, and all three of them, they couldn't stand the idea of blindness, so they chose paralysis. Had I had the choice, I would have chosen blindness over paralysis because if I had done blindness for a day, I could have got out of school for the whole day. But as it was, since I, see, my kids didn't get the spiritual gift of scheming that I was, that I was born with. They didn't think that through very well. So instead, they chose to do the paralysis experiment. So they couldn't, they had to live a whole day without being able to walk around. So, since I didn't want to borrow a wheelchair and go through all the trouble of making my house wheelchair accessible, we just used the rolling office chairs. So three of them spent all day being pushed around, mainly by Deidre, around the house and carried up and down the stairs um, and being pushed around in the office chair. Now, I think for the kids, I don't think they learned any empathy. For them, it was just a big game, getting to be pushed around the house all day by either Shepley or Deidre. To them, it was fun. Now, I think that in order to earn or learn empathy, they should have been made to lay on their back and not play toys and not watch TV and just be still for 24 hours on the couch or on the floor 
and be miserable. Then they would learn some empathy if they were able to be miserable. The kids didn't learn any empathy. I think all they got out of it was a big game. It was fun. It was an enjoyable day. But as parents, we learned to empathize. Deidre more than me because she had to deal with this all day long. I was gone most of the day. I learned to empathize with men who have to live with women who have to put up with stuff like that all day long. Now, I don't think that, I don't think that the kids really learned to be thankful for walking as much as I learned to be thankful not only that I can walk, but that all of my kids can walk. Because as short-lived as it is, and as brief and as small of a glimpse as it was, it did give me some insight into how my life could be radically different than it is, just even for that 24 hours. And it did teach me, at least, to be thankful, again, of the blessings that we take for granted, and of my life the way it is when I realize my life could be much, much different in the face of tragedy, and there are people for whom that is not a 24-hour experiment. It's not a project to earn a badge. There are people for whom that is a constant day-to-day, day-after-day, all-day reality that they have to deal with that. I don't think you have to be a parent in order to empathize with the man that we find in John chapter 4 that we just read about. You can hear in his voice, in his dialogue, I think, some of the pain, the helplessness, the hopelessness, the distress, the desperation of having a son who he knew was on the verge of death, who was inflicted with a fever. We saw last week that this was a man who was in the uh, the court of Herod Antipas, a man of means, a man of wealth, a man of reputation and position and power, influence, connections. And yet there's something desperate about spending basically everything you have and do, using all of the resources at your disposal and still not being able to do something for a sick son. So this man was desperate, and I think that he was uh, very helpless and hopeless when he came to Jesus. He came to Jesus for a cure and for a miracle. And he found in Jesus the compassion and the kindness and the grace that we would expect of our Lord. And Jesus performed for him what he had expected Jesus would do for him, and that is a miracle and a cure. Now, when this man comes to Jesus for the cure, for the miracle, to ask of him something, the man, I believe, was convinced that Jesus was able to heal his son. The man was convinced that Jesus was able to do something for him. There is something about his faith, and we're going to see it as we work our way through the passage, that is weak, it is inadequate, it is limited. There are things about the way the man views the Lord that are wrong, but the faith that this man had was a genuine faith. It was a crisis faith. It was a faith that kind of found its its fruition or its its birth in the midst of a personal crisis. But even though it was an inadequate faith and a small faith and a limited faith, and his understanding of Jesus was limited, we do see that as a result of the man's time with Jesus, that his faith began to grow, and we see it move from being a crisis faith to being a convinced faith, and then, for the sake of alliteration, a confirmed faith. And we see this progress in three specific stages through the passage. So I want you to notice, first of all, the man's crisis faith. Verses 47 through 49 His crisis faith. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And that describes a crisis in the man's life. A crisis in his life. He had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee. And I want to pause there just for a moment so that you notice something that's going to sort of become a 
a main theme in the next couple of chapters, and that is that at this point in Jesus' life and his ministry, he was well-known. Word was circulating about him. He wasn't an enigmatic figure, and he wasn't an unknown figure entirely. We saw this back in chapter 1. Word was beginning to spread. He was beginning to increase. John the Baptist beginning to decrease. We see in chapter 4, verse 1, that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So Jesus' popularity was growing almost exponentially. And you see it kind of come to its its zenith, if you will, in chapter 6, where multitudes have believed on him, and multitudes are following him. But then something happens in chapter 6 where all of that goes downhill, and it just gets worse from chapter 6. But at this point in the life of Jesus, word was spreading. You can imagine why word would spread, can't you? Sure you can. Here's a man who can do signs. Here's a man who can do miracles. Here's a man who's performing signs and wonders. He's healing the sick. He's making the lame walk. We saw back in chapter 2, he performed uh, the miracle of turning the water into wine. And then in chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 2, he did more signs in Jerusalem. And people saw that. And so as Jesus came into Galilee, into the region of Galilee, into the city of Cana, people believed on him and welcomed him and embraced him with open arms because here was the miracle man. And they embraced him because they saw all the signs that he did. And word spread. Word spread at least the 16 miles from Cana to Capernaum. And word came to this man, this nobleman, this man of Herod's court. Jesus of Nazareth is in Cana of Galilee. Now, this man had a son who was sick. We know he was sick with a fever. He was at the point of death. And word spread, and when it hurt, reached his ears, he left Capernaum and he went all the way to Cana to ask Jesus. And the text says he was begging him, imploring him. The NIV translates it begging. And that kind of captures the word because it's in a continuous sense, a continuous uh, tense, the verb is. And it has the idea of just this continual asking, a begging, a pleading. He had an attitude about him that would not quit until Jesus agreed to this one thing. He's going to come to Capernaum to heal his son. So he kept asking Jesus and imploring Jesus. We see that in verse 47. In verse 49, he says, come, come see my son before he dies. Please come and heal my son. He's begging him and imploring Jesus. I don't want you to picture in this man's dialogue and in his question any kind of a dispassionate, sort of emotionless, apathetic voice. I want you to picture, if you will, the voice of a parent whose child, of whatever age the boy is, is lying sick with a fever, and the man has traveled the 16 miles from Capernaum to Cana, and when he gets to Cana, he knows when he left his son in Capernaum that his son was on the verge of death. And when he gets to Cana, he doesn't even know if perhaps his son has died while he's been in transit. He doesn't even know if his son is still alive while he's standing in the presence of Jesus. But he does know that timing is of the essence, and he wants Jesus to come back to Capernaum with him, And he feels that Jesus has to leave immediately because if he doesn't, his son might die. Now, I have never been, as a parent, in a position of having lost a child or even being near, even having one of my children near death. And I think that even though we try and empathize with people, I think it's true that we can only empathize with people up to a point. It's limited. Even if we've been through everything another person has been through, Our empathy is very limited. It's genuine, but it's limited. We can never really truly say to somebody, I know exactly how you are feeling. You don't know that. I've never had to deal with the death of a child. I've I've had to deal with the death of loved ones, but never with the death of a child. Never even with a miscarriage or stillbirth or anything like that. 
And I hope that I never have to. I think that one of the most horrific and horrible aspects of living in a sin-cursed, fallen world is that sometimes there are parents who have to bury their children. That is the, the worst thing, the absolute worst thing in all of the world from my perspective. I can somewhat understand the desperation of this man. And I think that you don't even have to be a parent to be able to put yourself in the position of somebody who has a child that you think is right on the verge of death. And so when he comes to Jesus, he is pleading, he is begging, he is desperate, he's hopeless, he's helpless. He has, I think, probably used every last resource that he has and tapped every last connection that he has, made every attempt at doing whatever he can to take care of his son, and all of it has failed. The man is at a crisis, a crisis point. He is desperate. You can almost hear that in his voice. Come, come please to Capernaum and heal my son. He is lying sick with a fever. He's almost dead. He might be dead even now. We have to leave right now. No time for small talk. No discussion about the weather or the camel races last weekend and who's your favorite pick for this or that. All the pleasantries are out of the way. The man is desperate and he is begging, pleading with Jesus to do this. Which I think, by the way, is a good picture of prayer, is it not? When the soul is reposed upon Christ and resting in Him, and when you come to the point of realizing, my only hope in this situation is the grace and the kindness of my Savior, you will plead with Him and you will beg with Him, and until you reach that point, you'll try everything else under the sun to fix your problem. Until you come to the point of realizing who Jesus is and you're ready to rest yourself upon Him. And then God is delighted, and I believe he is glorified in the type of prayer that comes to him, begging and pleading and submitting to his will. So that's what the man does to Jesus, begging, pleading, asking Jesus to help him. And look at his, his request. Or before we do that, actually, let me, let me pause for just a second. You and I ought to learn a lesson here from, the, from this nobleman and from the fact that his son was sick. We are... We are prone to fall into the error of thinking that rich people have no worries. It's always people richer than us, right? We always think if I had that kind of wealth or if I had that type of power or that type of connections, if I were that popular, if I were him and I had all of those resources at my disposal, I wouldn't have any worries either. Sometimes we do that. We think that those who are better off in life and the rich and the wealthy have no cares, no anxiety, no afflictions. Life doesn't, life doesn't touch them like it touches us. We're just the hoi polloi. And if I had millions of dollars at my disposal, I wouldn't have to deal with any of life's afflictions. Do you realize that's not true? This rich man had to deal with life's afflictions, didn't he? You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'm going to read to you just a couple of verses out of Psalm 73. Psalm 73, it's a very earthbound and very man-centered and limited perspective that looks at life and says, if I only were wealthy, I wouldn't have any sufferings or afflictions. Psalm 73, listen to this. A psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. So he begins the psalm with this affirmation, God is good. But now here's a personal testimony from Asaph. As for me, I came very close to stumbling. And by stumbling, he means questioning that statement in verse 1. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Is that true? When the wicked die, are they without pain in their body? Do the wicked die pain-free deaths? No, they don't. 
But sometimes from the earthly perspective, we look at them, and externally we think, oh, they got it so easy. There's no pain in their deaths. Their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, and the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people turn to their return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know, and is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and they're always at ease, and they have increased in wealth. Now, here's this conclusion. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. And I'm not going to read the rest of the psalm, but basically Asaph goes on to say, it's not until I stepped into the sanctuary of God that I saw their true end. But that was the human perspective. The wealthy and other people, they're at ease. There's no pain in their death. They're not troubled like other people. Is it true? Here was a man who had the worldly wealth and all the worldly connections and popularity and power that you could hope to have. He was an official in the court of the king. And yet this son, this man's son's illness made him a beggar. A beggar. Because he now is standing before a Galilean carpenter's son, the lowest of social structure, and begging him for assistance. All of his wealth means nothing. All of his means mean nothing. The fact that he can walk into Herod Antipas's court and petition the king means absolutely nothing to him. Everything means little to him. And I think if this man is anything like your average parent, he would willingly give all of his earthly possessions, all of his wealth, all of his power, all of his influence, everything he has achieved for the life of his son. He would gladly trade the one for the other. And yet here he is a beggar. Was he at ease? No. J.C. Ryle says this, There is no more common or more mischievous error than to suppose that the rich have no cares. The rich are as liable to sickness as the poor and have a hundred anxieties beside, of which the poor know nothing at all. Silks and satins often cover very heavy hearts. The dwellers in palaces are often sleeping more uneasily than the dwellers in cottages. Gold and silver can lift no man beyond the reach of trouble. They may shut out debt and rags, but they cannot shut out care, disease, and death. End quote. That's the truth. Here was a rich man for whom his riches meant absolutely nothing. They can't secure the life of his child. They can't secure the life of his family. They can't make him better off. They can't uh, heal his son. And so he's reduced, even though he's wealthy, to the point of being a beggar before a carpenter's son, begging for assistance. I want you to notice also the request that he makes. Therefore, verse 47, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son. Come down and heal his son. Now, there are two two gaping holes in his understanding of Jesus and two very, very strong inadequacies of, of how he views Jesus. But let me say something positive about his faith before we look at, at the limitations of his faith. Positively speaking, we can, can, can uh, commend this man for having the belief that Jesus was able to do this. Now, perhaps he had seen the miracles in Jerusalem, recorded at the end of chapter 2. Perhaps he had heard of the miracles in Jerusalem. Maybe he had seen or heard of the water being turned into wine in Cana of Galilee. He was convinced that Jesus was able to do something for his son. And that is why he left Capernaum and traveled the 16 miles to see Jesus in Cana of Galilee. 
He knew that Jesus had the power, that he was a man sent from God, that he could do the signs, that if anybody could heal his son or fix his problem, it was, it was Jesus. He knew that much. But look at the two assumptions that are wrong in his request. First, he believed that Jesus had to be present to heal his son. You notice that? Come down with me from Cana to Capernaum. And it was, by the way, going down from Cana to Capernaum, even though they were east and west with each other. It wasn't north and south down. It was a matter of elevation. Cana, 650 feet above sea level. Uh, Capernaum, on the, seas, on the Sea of Galilee's uh, shore, so it was 700 feet below sea level, so a 1,400-foot decline coming down from Cana to Capernaum. But the man believed that Jesus had to be present to heal his son. That's why he's requesting him to come down. Now, contrast that with the faith of the centurion in Matthew 8 that we read last week, where Jesus offered to go to the centurion's home. And what did the centurion say? No, 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 no. No need to come. You just say the word and it'll be done. I, like you, am a man under authority. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. I say to this man, do this, and he does that. You don't need to do anything other than just say the word. Say the word and the word will be enough. Your authority is sufficient to do that. There's no need to even bother coming to my house. Just say the word and it'll be done. That was the centurion's faith. This man believed something different of Jesus. This man believed that Jesus had to be present in order to heal his son. There's a second false assumption that the man makes, and it's not as noticeable at first as the first one. He seemed to believe that if Jesus delayed and didn't come down to Capernaum to heal his son, that if his son died, it would be too late. Do you notice that? Thus the distress. Thus the impassioned plea. Thus his anxiety over the situation. He believed that Jesus was able to do it, but seemed to think Jesus had to be present in order to do it. And he also seemed to think that if his son died in the meantime, that it would be too late. In other words, he didn't understand that Jesus would be able to raise his son from the dead if he willed to do it. And so the man is passionately seeking Jesus to come to Capernaum before it's too late. Before it's too late. By the way, they made the same mistake as they did in John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, maybe the man makes this mistake because Jesus, by this point, hadn't raised anybody from the dead yet. We get the account in John chapter 11. You read in verse 21, Martha, when Jesus finally gets there, says, Lord, if you had come earlier, my, my brother would not have died. Right? I, I believe you could have kept him alive, but that weak faith didn't see that he was able to raise him from the dead. Then in verse 37 of John chapter 11, all the bystanders said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man alive also? We believe he's able to heal, but they thought there was some limit on his power. Same mistake that the man, the nobleman made here. He believed that Jesus was able to heal, but he didn't understand that he didn't have to be present to heal the boy. And even if he didn't heal the boy, he could allow the boy to die and Jesus would still be able to raise him from the dead. Now, the way Jesus does the miracle, he actually corrects one of the man's false assumptions. So the man came to Jesus, personal affliction, and it is a crisis faith. It's what we call a crisis faith. There's something about crisis faith. And if you've lived a while, you've probably noticed this. The faith that comes out in a crisis, or the faith that is present in a crisis, is oftentimes very short-lived. It's often very short-lived. I've seen this because I've been involved in jail ministry, and actually, as elders, we've talked about this from time to time. You go into a jail or somebody who's been gone through a personal crisis and they've landed in jail for whatever reason. And you go in as a jail chaplain and you're sharing the gospel with them, you're talking with them. And jail is a very, and I'm just using jail as an example. This could be the result of somebody uh, losing all of their financial wealth. That could be a crisis or a divorce 
or their family leaving them or the death of a child, whatever the crisis may be. I just use jail as an example. There's no place on earth like a jail. You'll never find a, a, a more concentrated collection of innocent religious people than you will within the confines of a jail. They're very, they're, they're very innocent and very religious. And so somebody goes, goes through a personal crisis and they land in jail and they read their Bible like you've never seen anybody read their Bible before. And they're studying scripture and they're asking questions and they're witnessing to the jailmates and they're praying all day long and they're reading their Bible and they're attending every service in the jail. And man, they are humbled and they're contrite and they're penitent. And you think, man, when they get out of here, our church is not going to have enough services to, for this individual. So on fire, so zealous, so committed. And they get out of jail and what happens? Two, three weeks go by and that zeal, that fire is there. But after 12 months, you know what I've seen time and time again? That the faith that is manifest in a crisis is gone almost as soon as the crisis is gone. I used to put stock in jailhouse conversions or in crisis conversions where you share the gospel with somebody who's going through a crisis and a time of distress and they make a profession of faith and they're zealous and they want what God wants and they're on fire for the Lord and they're reading scripture and looking for answers. I used to place a lot of stock in that and then scratch my head and wonder, what happened to them afterwards? I don't put as much stock in those anymore. You know why? Because I'm cynical? No, I'm a realist. And you know what I understand? I understand now what the nature of genuine saving faith is and what it looks like and who creates it and how it is received and how it is evidenced and what the fruit of it is. And I understand now the more the heart of man is deceitful above all things and how desperately wicked we are and how depraved we are. And because I understand those things, now I look back at a conversion in the middle of a crisis and I say, let's give it 12, 18 months and we'll see what the fruit of this is because it takes time for fruit to be born. Well, this man had a crisis faith. It's not a disingenuous faith. It's not a mere faith of human creation. It's not a temporary or shallow faith. It is a limited faith. It's a small faith. But Jesus takes this faith, which came in the midst of a crisis, and Jesus nurtures it, and through what he does in this man's life, it blossoms into a saving faith like that of the Samaritans. A limited faith, yes. A crisis faith, yes. But not all crisis faith is temporary faith. I found that just most of it is. Most of it is. It takes a while before the fruit comes out. Look at verse 48 now. We see the man coming to Jesus in a crisis faith. Verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, I don't think that Jesus is specifically and only addressing the nobleman with that rebuke, because it is a rebuke. It is a reproof. Jesus is using the occasion of this man's request and the opportunity of doing the sign to address this man, but also through this man, everybody else who is listening. It's plural, you people. It's not you singular, it's you plural, you people. He's addressing more than just the nobleman. And I think what he has in mind really is a, a blanket description of the Galilean faith. It was the Galileans in general who received him when they saw the what? The signs. Contrasting that with the Samaritan faith who believed his bare word without a single sign without a manifestation of signs and wonders, with no miracles or cures performed. The Samaritans believed his word. He said it, and that was sufficient. 
Now, a reason I don't think that Jesus is addressing just the man here is because in verse 50, we see that his faith was not dependent on signs and wonders. When Jesus says, go, your son lives, the man believes the word of Jesus. This man is to be contrasted with not only the uh, with all of the Galileans and the Galilean faith in general, which required signs and wonders. Without any signs and without any wonders, they would never believe. Their faith was based upon the signs. Show us a miracle, and then we will believe. And let me ask you this question. Is faith that requires proof really faith? Is faith that requires proof really faith? The man who says, I'll believe, but I want you to show me. I'm willing to believe if you show me this. Do you remember it's at the end of the book of John? Thomas, I see the prince in his hands and in his feet and put my fingers into his side. Then I will believe. When he saw, Thomas believed. But then Jesus said, you have believed because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The faith that is willing to say, you answer all of my questions, deal with all of my objections, give me all of the proof that satisfies me, and I will believe. If they believe based upon that, is it faith? It's not faith. Do you know what genuine, God-wrought, saving faith looks like? Genuine, God-wrought, saving faith says, I will believe. Take God at His word. He doesn't have to prove to me anything. I will believe him because of who he is and because he has said what he has said and I will reach out and I will embrace that and I will cling to that. I will believe him even without any signs or wonders. And see, this is why I think crisis faith falls down because people who are in the midst of the crisis turn to God and then when God doesn't deliver on their demands, their expectations, guess what happens? They turn and they walk away. Why? Because they had a faith that wanted to see the sign. They wanted deliverance from the crisis. And when that deliverance doesn't come and the crisis doesn't pass or they're not immediately seeing the miracle that sort of delivers them from that crisis, then they turn and they walk away from the Lord. True, genuine, God-wrought, saving faith believes without miracles, no signs. Now, what is the relation between my faith and the proof that I see in Scripture? The faith that I have, my saving faith, is not a faith that says, you show me, you prove it to me, God, and then I will believe you. The faith that I have, which comes from God, which is a gift, it's God's gift, it comes at regeneration, it's genuine, saving, supernatural faith, that faith reaches out and says, I will believe God and take Him at His word no matter what. No proof necessary. And I will believe on Him because He has said it. And that is sufficient for me. That's genuine God-wrought saving faith. Then I read in my Bible about the miracles and about the proofs, and I discover things about the Christian faith, and I find out answers to my questions, and all of those things only serve to confirm my faith. But I don't require those things in order to believe. I would believe without a single recorded miracle. I would believe without a single recorded miracle. Why? Because it is a divine, supernatural faith that says, I will believe him because he said it. I need no proof. Now, when I'm presented proof, it fits in well with what I already know to be true, what I already believe to be true. But genuine faith is not dependent upon the miracles. This man's faith did not depend upon the miracles. That's why he says in verse 50, the man believed his word. He just believed the word of Jesus. Jesus said, go, your son lives. The man had no proof. The man had nobody sitting there to confirm it. He didn't have a cell phone to call back home and say, is my son really alive? He didn't have any of that. You said it, 
That is enough. And it's a convinced faith he turns and he walked away. But we're going to have to look at more at that next week because our time is passing on us. I want you to notice one final thing as we close here about the passage. I want you to notice that verse 48 says, You people, addressing the Galileans, Jesus said, You people, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now that's a faith, as I said, based upon signs and on the proof. And Jesus is saying, without the proof, you won't believe. Now here's the question. Did Jesus give them the proof that they wanted? Did he do a sign for them? The answer is yes and no. He did the sign at this moment by speaking the word, your son lives. He performed the sign, the miracle. But were any of the Galileans able to confirm that? The man believed his word, the nobleman, the nobleman believed his word, and he departed and went back home, not needing Jesus to come. His word was sufficient for him. But how about the Galileans? Did the Galileans see a miracle or a sign that day? No, they didn't. Who's the only person who later on was able to confirm that sign? The man. Just that man. That man understood the miracle. He understood that it was at that time that his son got better and was restored to health. That man then believed, but that man didn't even need the sign. The Galileans needed the sign. They wouldn't believe without the sign. Without the presence of the miracles, they would never believe. Now, here's the question. Without the presence of miracles, they would never believe. Did Jesus perform a miracle for them so that they would believe? He did not. He did not. Do you have room in your theology for that? They wouldn't believe without the miracle. Jesus did not perform the miracle. And you say, why didn't he just do the miracle, do something so that they would believe? Simply put, Jesus is not interested in propping up superficial, shallow human faith that requires evidence. He's not interested in that. He never did that. No sign, no miracle was ever produced in order to just get people to believe. Never was. The miracles verified who he was. They verified his claims. They were evidence. They were proof. But Jesus was not into performing signs, wonders, miracles, just to get people to believe. You're going to have to fit that into your theology somehow. You won't believe without a miracle. So I'm not going to give you one. What do you do with that? Well, if you believe God is sovereign, and if you believe that Jesus knows the hearts of men, and if you believe that Jesus knew what was in this man and he knew his faith, then he did the sign. He showed his compassion. He showed his kindness. But to that man, but that man didn't need the miracle to believe. He already believed. That's why he came from Capernaum to to Cana. He already believed this about Jesus. And Jesus knew what was in his heart. He knew what his faith was like. And because of that, he did the miracle, an act of compassion and kindness. And the only one who got to enjoy that or see the immediate fruit of that was what? The man. But it just confirmed his faith. He didn't need it to believe. He already believed. This is what the Lord does to you and I. If you have a shallow, superficial, insignificant faith that is temporary and dependent upon signs and you want to see proof and you want to see answers, God is not interested in that at all. What Jesus does do with us, though, he reveals to us and reveals to everybody the shallowness and the superficiality of our faith when it's inadequate. And then he also does what he does to the nobleman, and that is that he takes the small faith, limited in its understanding, yes, And he takes that and he grows it to a genuine, saving, believing faith, a confirmed faith, where the evidence fits in with it. And the man later on understands who Jesus is and what he is capable of doing.
We'll take a look at that next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are so good to us as to not only give us the gift of faith, but that you continually manifest your grace in in allowing us to express that gift and to trust you. We thank you that your word is reliable and faithful and true and that we can believe you for who you are. And even in the absence of miracles and signs and answers to our questions and our objections, we know that you are true and the faith that we have is strong and it is solid and it embraces you. That is not something of human creation and human making. It's not something that we fabricated in the midst of our own being. It is something that you have given and you continue to nurture. And we thank you for that faith. We pray that you would strengthen it and encourage us in it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.